Okay. All right. So this says genre and cultural background of the Old Testament. And you, like, um, you might want to scratch genre and you probably even want to scratch out cultural background. Just how about background? <laughs> That's all I got. Like, I worked on this and this, as far as I got, it's like, like, what were the culture, cultures interacting with the Old Testament people? And then that was a lot of work. And then I'm like, okay, that's what I have. Might be two hours, maybe not. Who, who knows? Um, so we intentionally left the last, so we're at like a 10-week series. We left, last the left one blank for such a moment as this. So um, genres and culture, I think, we'll cover in like the last, the last week. So I kept saying, like, I'm going to bring in like those ancient readings of uh, religious texts. That's going to be, that's going to have to wait. I'll kind of refer to them as we go. But the actual, like, here's what they said about Marduk. That's not happening. This is today. Okay. So, I don't know if you're excited about that or not. Because I mentioned it at the end of last week. Like, oh, next week we're going to talk about... It's just not happening. Okay. So, uh, to open, uh, Acts 17. So this um, is kind of a famous passage, I think among Christians at least. Um, so this is Paul, he's in Athens, and um, he, he went around. So Athens is one of the cities that was known for philosophy and religion. And he went around and he saw all these idols, and there's the idol to the unknown God. And he says, oh, you want to know about this God you don't know about? Let me tell you. So picking up in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So right here he's saying, so he determined what time, they were going to exist, and where they were going to exist. So time and place. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for, quote, in him we live, move, and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, and, quote, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art in the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given his assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But, so, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and the woman named Damaris and others with them. And this is like a theme like in Acts. Like, everything's going fine until you say Jesus rose, rose from the dead. And they're like, what? And that's like, that's when there's a problem. Like, you're, we're all fine with like this, like, this, because, I mean, they believed that they were like these god men on the earth. They thought Caesar was some type of deity. But he's like, no, 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 this, is, this guy's a little, he's qualitatively different. He died and rose again. And they're like, okay, wait a second. This is, this is like ridiculous. Like, this can't be true. And I like also in this, when he's saying, like, you know, to his unknown God. So in their minds, they have, like, kind of the structure. Here's what the gods are. They have, like, these characteristics. They live in the heavens. They kind of interact with mankind when they're fickle enough to do so. Um, you often have to coerce the gods to do things that you want. Um, so you have to make them happy, give them food, all these things. And he says, well, let me tell you about this, you know, this other little, you know, this other deity you just don't happen to know about. And then, like, the way he describes is so different from everything they ever thought a god was. Like, he rules all of heaven and all of earth. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, no god rules all the heavens nor all the earth. And, and, he's, and he's talking about this one god. So, so he's like totally busting their system apart with this description. Um, but one of the, the, the kind of the key points here is that, and then this god made every nation. Every nation that we talk about today was made by God, for God. Like, everything exists for his glory. And we'll see some verses about that. Everything existed for his glory. And then he determined the time and the place of their dwelling. That they should seek God, though that does not happen. They did not seek God in that way. So perhaps they might feel towards him, yet he is actually not far from us. So in him we live, move, and have our being. Okay, so... The, the Old Testament was written, like, in a culture, and there was, there was history going on. There was, like, armies moving this way, armies moving that way, and one nation taking over another nation. And these things intersect with the Old Testament. Cause, and, you, and you get glimpses of that, like, new king, this king, that king, this army, this army. And I, I remember just, like, for years when I was, like, reading through, like, Chronicles or reading through, especially the prophets, being like, Wah, 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 Like, I have no clue what you're talking about. But, you know, I'll keep reading this Bible. But, like, no, like, kind of understanding of what was going on. And so at some point, I'm like, you know what? If I can keep reading this book over and over again, I better figure out, like, who these people are and what's going on. And so the first thing that I ever did that I thought was really helpful is someone I read what was called, like, a chronology chronological reading plan. So what it does is it starts with Genesis and it works through um, the law and then everything's like a normal reading plan up till about um, the histories by the time you get to Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Um, so you read some of it and they'll stop and then go to the prophet who's talking to that time. So, like, so if Isaiah gets mentioned. It's like, okay, and then here's Isaiah's prophecy. And, and it kind of works its way out that way. And I thought it was really interesting because all of a sudden you're, like, you're reading like these kind of big statements. Like, here's the big statement about what's happening with this king who fought this king. Oh, and by the way, and then the, you go to the prophet, and the prophet starts talking to the society and the culture saying, this is how you're behaving. 
this is what you've done wrong. And so, so like, Kings kind of gives us the big picture, and then the prophets kind of give us a small picture, like what were the attitudes and the heart of the people that they were talking to. Because sometimes you can, like, you know, oh, you know, so they just put up a couple altars in, in town. Like, what's the big deal? And then you, and you, like, and you've trampled the poor under your foot, and you have summer homes and winter homes, but there's people dying of hunger next door to you. Like, this is, these are problems. And so, so you get, getting that picture together is really helpful to understand, like, the society. So I say here, ways to get an overview of the culture and social background on the first page. So the first one, uh, read the Bible chronologically. And you can pretty much Google Bible chronological reading, and bing, you'll get, like, you know, 500 hits, all of which are pretty much dead on. The, the second thing is um, read through the Bible with a study Bible that focuses particularly on those details. So Joanne Farnsworth, one day came up to me and she says, I'm looking for a Bible that has like tells me about the people groups and what was happening. So basically the question I had had probably five years before she asked me this. And there, between the point when I had started trying to figure this stuff out and she asked me, they had published a, the ESV study Bible, 2008. It's like it's like, this is not when you take to church. This is when you leave, yeah, <laughs> leave at home. Right? It's like, yuck, like this big. Okay, but I remember reading it, especially when I was getting seminary training, going, oh my goodness, this is like, this is it. This is exactly what they're trying to teach me, but just with prettier pictures and easier words. And so I was like, okay, so Joanne, you should try this one. And she goes, okay, do they have it in giant print? I'm like, I'm sure they do. So she got it, and she came back like a year later. I like, oh, I love that study Bible. It tells me everything. So I put it here. So the 2008 ESV Study Bible is the best I found, and Joanne Farnsworth gives her two thumbs up, too. <laughs> um, and then the other thing would be read through the book of the Bible with a commentary, and not even like a big, thick one. Like they have, there's like two, two styles of commentaries. There's the commentary that has like one commentary for the book, and they're thick, and they're thick, and they're hard reading. Or there's like these general ones where like, it's like, you know, one for the whole Old Testament. And so I remember just one time saying, okay, Jeremiah, me and you, let's do this. And so I would like read a chapter of Jeremiah. I'd read the commentary saying, okay, here's what was going on. And I'd go and read Jeremiah again. I'm like, oh, I see, I see. And that was really helpful, but it actually took a long time. So that's why I'm like, I think I'm giving these to you in like, what takes the least amount of time, the most amount of time. So reading the Bible chronologically, you should be reading your Bible anyway, so that takes the least amount of time. And then reading it with a study Bible, which means you stop and read the notes, that takes a little more time. Reading through the commentary is a commitment. And then read a book on said topic. So if you're into extra reading, read books on that, especially ones that deal with archaeology. And I could probably have some recommendations for that if you're so interested. All right, so the major people groups of the ancient Near East. So that's, that's the area. So I have a map right there, which is kind of okay. I think mine's cooler. It's got a dead cow. <laughs> so, but it, it gets a little bit of um, Asia Minor in there, which plays an important part to what's about to happen in some of like, these northern regions. I mean, if you listen like world politics nowadays, like this is still like, Syria. It's going on. Aleppo is still a big Nineveh. Um, Nineveh slash Mosul, that's what they call it now, is Mosul. Um, but Nineveh, Mosul, and, you know, Mosul's right, right now in the news. So all these areas, they're still in the news. So you may have seen this part of the map. Now you see where it says Fertile Crescent right there? 
So it's like, there's like a bend. So um, they have these rivers, and then going down alongside the Mediterranean Sea, they call it the Fertile Crescent, which whether or not you believe in the Bible, everyone agrees that that's where mankind first kind of cropped up. You know, society, the oldest um, societies have been identified there, and these are the areas that, you know, we assume the Garden of Eden was somewhere nearby there, and after the flood, they all dropped off somewhere nearby there, and like all the major people groups spread out from that area and then migrated. All right, so if you lived in that time, in that place, like your number one concern, besides not getting killed by your neighbor, would be water. So you needed water. And so they don't have like irrigation at this point. They don't have ways to get water to you. So you either found some place that it rained a lot or you had a river. And so all the major um, cities and all the major people groups originated near a river. Okay, and if you didn't, you were just some tribal people running around with goats trying to find little pieces of grass, right, and wells. Like, and that's what you spent most of your time doing. And so, um, in right below the Fertile Crescent, you see the Tigris and Euphrates River. Okay, this is refer- what's referred to as Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means between rivers. So, literally. So, between the two rivers, like, so this is where all the water is, it's lush, and you can grow things, and you can have water, and it's pretty hard to cut off the water source um, with a dam. So you either live there, or you're moving down the Fertile Crescent along the Mediterranean Sea. You live close to the ocean, so you get the coastal weather and the coastal rains. And then as you move south, you can see the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. So those would be areas that you could also live and inhabit, although um, the Jordan, Jordan River is like in this deep valley, so it's kind of hard to get to anyways. But, you know, there's tributaries and stuff like that. And then the Sinai Peninsula is apparently arid and not really good for living in. That's why God sent his people there, to show that he could do it. And then you have the Nile with Egypt. So the, the, major, the major people groups come from Mesopotamia and the Nile. And then in between connecting them is the uh, Palestine and Israel. So um, that's desert. Okay? So people aren't taking straight line shots unless you really, really had to. There's a couple times that some people would be like in Jerusalem, find out that there are kingdoms being taken over, and they'd do like a three-day, like just nonstop march through the desert and see if they can make it. Um, but if you're like totally desperate and you're willing to lose some people, you would do that. For the most part, you follow the water, follow the water, keep following the water, and that's how you got from point A to point B, is you followed water. And so most of the people would walk this way. And so you could think of where Israel is as the I-5 of California. Like if you want to get from anywhere, you're going to go like major metropolitan area, go through this swath right here to the other major metropolitan. So there's a lot of foot traffic, a lot of foot traffic going through that region over the years. So, the Egyptians. So what I'm going to do is, that, so all the people groups that have a major interaction with Israel, we're going to talk about them and like what's going on. And, like, and hopefully like this kind of fills in the details. So when you hear like, oh, this happened and this happened, you have some like context like, oh, this is when so-and-so was doing such and such. And um, ever since like the mid-1800s, when archaeology was like the really big thing, you know, like when you think of archaeologists, with like their magnifying glass and their gas lamps and they're digging up huge things. Like from that point onward, we have a lot more information. Interesting fact, 
they, uh, the Bible has been mocked for many things. And one of those mocked for is like, there is no such thing as the Assyrians. Which is like, there's no doubt in our minds that they're Assyrians. We have found Assyrian everything um, at Nineveh. So, so, you know, well, you know, the Bible was right. Okay, so the Egyptians. So weirdly enough, when the Egyptians started out, they didn't, like, you, you think of, like, you know, great rise to power, like Egypt's this great nation. They actually started off much, much slower than Mesopotamia. And probably a lot of that has to do with, like, no interactions. Like, you go scout your enemy city and you go, oh, what a great idea. I'm going to go do that myself. So they were pretty isolated from Mesopotamia early on. So they didn't have, like, a lot of things to bounce their minds off of. So when they look at the archaeology, it... Egypt starting slow, starting slow, starting slow, and all of a sudden, like when they're when they're like strata, right? They got the strata, and like all of a sudden, Mesopotamia pottery shows up, and then Egypt goes, they start blooming, and they really start taking off. So it's when they start having interactions with these nations up here that Egypt really starts to flourish. Okay, so there's like what they call the old kingdom of Egypt. So like when you think Egypt, you think pyramids. Sphinxes, like really cool things. Yeah, that is the old kingdom. So 3000 BC. Um, this is when the pharaohs are like, like, like the he gods. Like they, they, the, the pharaohs not only ruled the political structure, they ruled the religious structure simultaneously. So the, the people of Egypt would have viewed, from what we can tell from the writings, they would have viewed the Pharaoh as a deity in the flesh. Like, and there they are, like, ruling them. So, so they controlled both the politics and the religion. So the Pharaohs pretty much had 100% power over the people. And so that's when they created the Great Pyramids. So the pyramids are supposed to be the burial places for the kings so they can go in the afterlife and they have all their earthly possessions go with them. And so they made these huge pyramids and put themselves in it and then buried their slaves with them so they could have slaves when they're in heaven too. Hooray. So do note, um, so remember that when Egypt was having that big brouhaha in Cairo, a couple like in the Arab Spring, a couple of years back, and there was, that, there was that Facebook meme, like, dear Egyptians, please be nice to the, um, dear Egyptians, please be nice to the pyramids. We're not going to rebuild them. Sincerely, Israel. Yeah, because like, okay, Israel did not build pyramids. Like these, these things were like these things were well established for centuries before the Israelites showed up and became slaves. And so, who built the pyramids? Um, well, if the pharaohs, like the the king and the religious dude, like pretty much like all his people are his slaves. And so the Nile, like the Nile, one of the interesting things about the Nile is the Nile would flood. And then it would like unflood, and when it unflood, it's like oh, fertile ground, plant, and they harvest. But then when it flooded, there's nothing to do. So what they did apparently, we think, built pyramids. And so um, some people think they did it with aliens. You read the History Channel, such a the History Channel is so much fun. <laughs> like aliens. Okay, so no, nope, just pulleys and ramps, and lots of time and motivation. Okay, so. Um, so the 2,700, uh, 2, so 220, 2,200. 2, so this is what they call the Old Kingdom. It's big. So then after that, 
from 228 to 1550. So Egypt kind of fluctuates power. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. And there begin to be other shifts in power. So the, the Pharaoh lost, um, kept political power, but lost religious power. Because then they started having these um, sun, there's like this sun cult, so the sun uh, gods with their priests. And suddenly, so... As time moves forward, the pyramids keep getting smaller and smaller and shabbier and shabbier. But then, like, the sun temples are getting more and more elaborate, and they're making these huge obelisks that are t- taller than that pyramid that just got built. So, like, you can kind of see, like, uh-huh, I see where the resources are going. Like, so the pharaoh now is subservient to the religious power. Um, so, so, um, so rise, fall, rise, fall. And so they say uh, probably about the time that Abraham shows up to Egypt... Egypt's doing I mean, it's doing, it's doing good. Compared to, like, all its neighbors, yeah, it's, it's got an army, it's flourishing, they've got the Nile, they've got crops, they don't have to live off of goats and goat's milk and rainwaters, and they're doing okay, and no one's ever tried to come and conquer them. Um, they have some pressure from below, so, like, the uh, Nubia was a nation below them that kind of would push on them a little bit, but it was never really a huge deal. Sometime after the Old Kingdom and before what I call the Hyskos, the um, there was a civil war where the north and south split up between Egypt. And so that kind of north-south split never was completely um, rectified, but they got along mostly. Okay, so then, so Abraham shows up. There's kind of this north-south split, but Egypt's doing fine. Okay, and then during Abraham's life, there's this really interesting moment where these, they're called Hyskos, and they're foreign rulers. And the Hyskos people, they were, from what they can tell from the names of, like, the recorded names of some of these people, um, they had what they refer to as Semitic names. So they came from, like, Canaan. So, these, like, somehow these Canaanites came into Egypt, got involved in politics, and somehow became Pharaoh. <laughs> like, somewhere in there, it's, like, it's not entirely clear, like, how that happened. But, but we do know one thing. They came in in the Bronze Age, and they came in with chariots, and composite bows and bronze swords, which totally get them the, no pun intended, edge up in any battles. Okay, so they come in with like better war equipment. And so somehow, so Hyskos in Egyptian apparently means foreigner. So they were ruled by the sequence of pharaohs who were not natively Egyptian. They were natively from probably Canaan. So really interesting because when Joseph is sold into slavery, He's sold to a pharaoh who's a Hyskos. He is, he's, he's, the pharaoh is like a foreign power that rules over them. Generous. But then the, 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 but the um, Egyptians aren't that thrilled with them being there. And so, so Joseph, Canaanite, he flourishes. He rises in the rank. Um, so the story in Genesis where God saves the world through Egyptians' abundance. And then um, towards the end, so... You know, Joseph has his two kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he names them uh, Jewish names. He doesn't name them Egyptian names. So he's like, I'm maintaining my Jewish identity, FYI, just in case you think I'm an Egyptian. And by the way, I really don't want to live in Egypt. I'd rather live in this land called Goshen. So it's this flat, lots of grass, goats happy um, place to live. Okay, so then there was a king... So there, the, the north-south had like these dy- power dynamics. And so the high schools let there be like pharaohs, these like little subservient kings below them. And one of these subservient kings like 
amasses an army, marches north, and kicks that, the high school's ruling family out of Egypt. They say kicked out. I kind of thought he would kill them off, but apparently he just kicked them out. Okay, so that guy's name is Amos. So the high schools, they ruled for 100 years. They had the puppet pharaohs, and this dude named Amos says, all right, enough is enough. He marches up from the south, kicks them out. So now he has control of the north and south. Okay, interestingly, Exodus 1, verse 8. Now a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And they track it to Amos. So this guy who kicks out the high school's ruling class and says, hey, hey, okay, we got a new, yeah, we're going back to native rulers. We're not going to have these Canaanite rulers. That's the one that they track to the time when Moses was born. So, so imagine what's going on here. So Canaanite family came into Egypt, grew in power, took over our government. They kick him out. Meanwhile, in Goshen, Canaanite family growing in power, hmm, yeah, and and like has no like past history says like we think these people are good. So almost is likely one that the whole thing with like let's let's thin them out, let's kill their babies. That would be the Pharaoh. So Moses escapes the slaughter. He's raised in Amos's courts. So probably the first third of his life, 20, 30 years, um, he would have been in this Pharaoh's court. Um, when Amos dies, his son, you think, would be in power, but the ant takes over. And so the ant's kind of... So either she like uses this guy as like like little puppet dude. Apparently she like cross-dresses and wears a fake beard and like tries to play Pharaoh. And, there, and so either it was... The son or the aunt controlling the son or the aunt acting like dude that like Moses had issues with and had to flee. So at that point when he's out, um, it's probably it's the one after Amos. Okay, this aunt has a son who like while like while she or like this other guy are kind of reigning, which she really isn't, but she is. There's this there's this king there's this kid up with an army, so he's a prince. And he's got these generals, and he's marching into Canaan, because, you know, the high schools who are Canaanite don't like him anymore. And ever, pretty much ever after that high schools thing, like, Egypt doesn't get along very well with many other foreign powers, you can imagine. And so they march up into Canaan, and this prince is like this, like, like a really arrogant kid, and he really is a kid. And, like, so there's this one place where there are these three paths, the, uh, three valleys to go through. And this is up actually in Israel. There's like three valleys you can take. You can go the coastal, mid, or like on the other side. And he like wants to go on the one, on this one path, and his general say, no, 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 let's go on this other path. I say, okay, well, let's, let's do divination and see what the gods want us to do. And so they rip open the cat, look at the guts, and say, they want us to go this way. He goes, you know, not feeling it. Can you do it again? So they rip open another cat. Say, the guts say to go this way. He goes, still not feeling it. And so, so they like rip open a third cat and it says, go the way that the, the, the prince wants. He goes, let's go. Like, and, and then they go and he was right. Like he just happened to be right. So, so this kid's like super successful and he writes like these really like extravagant self-descriptions of himself and like in the Egyptian hieroglyphs about how the breath of Ra was in me. Like he saw himself as the favored one of the gods because he just like come up with these brilliant strategies, pull them off and like win the fight. Like I told you. 
Like, so basically, he can outwit the gods. Like, the gods tell me to do this, but I want to go this way. The gods bless me. The gods are with me. So he comes back home and rules next. And he's the pharaoh that God has a showdown with. So think about it. This, guy, this kid thinks he's the tough stuff. He thinks he's the one that the gods favor. Then Moses shows up and says, let my people go. And he goes, do what? God says, no. Like, let my people go. Like, and, and, and this guy's like having nothing of it because he thinks he's like, he is all that. And so there's that verse in Exodus 9.16. When, so he just, for God says, For this reason I raised you up, that I might demonstrate my power. You who thought you were oh so lucky, oh so, like you had all these great ideas. No, I let you be successful. I let you be victorious. So you'd be this great king that would oppose me, and I'd be able to demonstrate my power. And so when the plagues come, all right, you've heard this, like, so the Egyptians had a lot of the gods, and systematically God... Says, oh, sun god, huh? Block out the sun. Oh, the Nile and the Nile gets, huh? I'll turn them out of the blood. Oh, the gnats, gone. Like, working all the way down to get to that last one. The firstborn son, and oh, Pharaoh as God? That too. So, so God strikes at Pharaoh, himself being like a manifestation of a god, and so he kills the son. So, like, this Pharaoh who thought the gods were completely for him, all his gods are crushed before his eyes, and then he himself is crushed by God. And, huh? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so yeah, so Ramses the second. So there, there was for a while like this conversation of like which kings were which, and there was like these two dating systems. Um, and so there's like old Exodus and new Exodus or something like that. The more they've looked, like the more archaeology that, that they've tracked down, the more they've been able to pinpoint like the names and events and like similar things. They've they found they're pretty sure they found like a receipt of like some like nomadic person from Canaan that has a name very similar to Abraham in like the records of the kings, like some trade that went down. And um, the way the way that goes this is this: if you date. The, the reason why they consider like this dating to be the best dating is that you can be the most consistent with what happens in the Bible at this point on. So like all the other dates line up perfectly. If you do it with like Grand Second, then you have to like make all these adjustments up and these like during the kings and stuff like that. And they've never been able to work it out. So that's why they attach it to the most the third. Yeah. Was that? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Not the pyramids. Not the pyramids. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's so funny because, like, everybody's, like, Egypt, knowledge of the Egyptians, like, from the Ten Commandments, right? And, like, Yule Brunner and all that. Like, so all these things, like, get in the way. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I guess I should say, like, from this point out, we're fought, like, Egypt's kind of one of the ones, like, okay, is it is it these series of kings or, like, that series of kings? This one is the one that makes... Everything from this point on kind of line up the best. And so that's why they're running with it. Okay. So the Egyptians, um, after this point, play a very small role until Babylon. So they kind of just like hunker down and we leave it. Okay. So then, meanwhile, up in Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldeans. Who's up there? My man Abraham, right? Or Abram at this point. Okay. So Ur of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans did not actually have a lot. They, didn't have, they did not enjoy this really huge reign. They apparently like had like this really solid kind of like mini empire for a little bit, and then the Babylonians, the Babylonians kind of kicked them out a little bit. But there was this time that when Abraham was there, that 
Ur was this great, in my city, great metropolis, um, hustle and bustle. And you see the picture there, it's a ziggurat. So, and it's still there, that's standing. Um, you can go walk on it if you want. And so, like, this is the, where their temple, so their temple would be built on top of that. So you have all these walkways at the top, and then they put a temple there. So, you know, so here's, you're sitting at Ur, and you can look this direction, and behold, your great ziggurat with your temple kind of looking down upon you. And if you wanted, like, in the terms of marketplaces, apparently all the marketing would happen around the ziggurat. So um, your life revolved around, like, this pagan temple worship. Um, in Joshua, the mentions that Abraham's father was polytheistic, that um, he worshipped many gods. Was Abraham polytheistic? Well, he may have been at one point, probably was at some point. But then God spoke to him and said, get up and leave. And Abraham says, oh, no God's done that to me before. I guess I'm going to follow this God. And so he leaves. So um, we'll get, so in another day, we'll get into this. Um, at least talking a little bit about polytheism. So there's like this, all these gods. And as one nation would like rise up, so the, so the gods were like, there's like the big gods and the little gods and the little, little gods. Like the local little, almost like a demon running or a little angel running around in your little territory that kind of kept you safe. Um, and so like who were the high gods? Well, it just depends who's like the big, big kid in town, right? So if like Babylon was big kid in town, then it's Marduk, right? He is the big god. And then as, like, as one nation would, like, get bigger and bigger and bigger, they'd write these stories about how Marduk, like, just happened to kill this god over here and create humanity himself or something like that. Like, there's some, like, explanation in the deities about why also in Babylon's god is, you know, doing great. And so, um, the... The Ur gods, they kind of show up. They're kind of like mid-high gods, not low gods. They're kind of, they're up there a little bit. So it kind of tells you, like, where people viewed them. Uh-huh. Yep. They, yeah, was it a ziggurat? Yeah, was it the ziggurat to rule all ziggurats, right? Yeah. If you look at, um, like, like Renaissance paintings or, like, even older They'll, they'll picture Babylon as like this, this ziggurat that just kept was going up in the sky. They just kept going and going. So maybe. Maybe. Alright, so then you have the Canaanites. Okay. So the Canaanites, so they have, I mean, big metropolis, big metropolis, Canaan. With like, I mean, you got some nice areas, but for the most part, lots of migration going on, lots like, um, so in a city in Canaan, they have what they call tells, T-E-L, like Tel Aviv, like the city. Well, um, Aviv is actually the name of the city, and the tell would be like um, the fact that these things were mounds. So the cities often show up as these hills, because what would happen is, you move into town, you say, ah, what a flourishing land, what a nice well right there. And so you set up this little town, and you build some bricks, and you know you got to make this little border, and then... You know, and you're flourishing, and then one year it just doesn't rain, and the well level drops, and then the little grasses don't show up, and you're like, you know what, we're going to just leave. And so you pick up everything, and you move and find some other place that has a better well or better place to do your goats. And then, you know, fast forward 10 more years, and some good rains come in, and the well's full, and someone goes, ah, look at this wonderful well. I think I'll build. And they're like, oh, I guess someone are. And so they just build right on top of that, like of the last town, 
Which is often the bricks are made out of mud or something like that. So when you get enough like rain, when the rains come down, the floods come up, like it just all kind of like muddles down again. And then and so and then like repeat that cycle over and over. So they just kind of build on top, and then it goes thing, and then build on top again, and then the rains come and push it because these people are leaving. And so you get these areas that just kind of grow into these mounds. So what they do in the excavation is they just like take these down layer by layer by layer, and like layer. Oh, look at, like, evidence of X many people living there. Must have been a good time. Next layer. Hmm, nobody. Hmm, next layer. Hmm, still nobody. Hmm, small group. Okay. And then, oh, lots of people. So, what they do, so like, lots of pottery, lots of shards, lots of, like, you know, signs of life. And so those are called tells. And so they kind of deconstruct, like, what was going on historically um, by excavating these tells one line at a time. And it's very slow going. They're still doing it. And so, okay, so you have Canaan, you have these tells, these kind of, like, people move a lot just to keep up with the water. But then again, um, even though it's rural in one sense, it's like, think rural in terms of like I-5, where there's like these nice cities in some spots, because just, and what sustains those? Like, it's a desert. You're in the middle of nowhere. Why is there a city? It's like, because like, there's lots of people going back and forth. And so, one thing they've noted is that the one thing the Canaanites had the best of was pottery. They had, like, high-quality pottery, like, made out of the best materials, and the designs were, like, they had these knots and these flourishes. And so, you know, you know, hey, nation, you're coming by. Hey, why don't you look at my pottery, right? And so they had, like, this good that they can trade. Um, they think that just from descriptions, like, what they see of, like, I said that most things that survive in a, in a society is trash and receipts. You have lots and lots and lots of receipts. And so just from like, like reading receipts and looking like, oh, this person kind of had this type of job description. Oh, this person, this type of job description. They actually think that Abraham, probably one of his things he did besides raise cattle was he escorted people. Like, it's like, oh, are you going to Egypt? Well, I'm heading that way too. And so like, and, and you think like, there's that scene where like Lot is, is a lot is captured and like Abraham goes with a huge army and like says, Hey, hey, you let my nephew go. So, like, so Abraham has armed guards. He's got a big entourage, lots of food. You're not going to run out of food as you go. So Abraham was probably, like, escorting people north and south as they made this travel. They think that might be one of the things he would have done. So making lots of money. He didn't own land, right? That was one of his things. Until Sarah died, he didn't buy a single piece of land in Canaan. Um, and then, so Canaan, so the lots, we know this just from like reading the Bible, lots of like tribes and lots of kings, like lots of kings. Like it make, makes you wonder what a king is, right? It's like, you know, 26 kings within like, you know, spitting distance of each other. So basically a king's like, you got a big town, you got some people going to fight. I'm a king, right? And so they have all these tribes and for the, I mean, I'm sure there's fighting going on, but it's not like, like whole scale battle the whole time. I'm sure they're kind of, kind of, you think of the way the world is now, there's like just, Relative peace, not perfect peace. It's like, you know, people kind of pushing on each other a little bit. But no one's going through and just completely trying to take over things. So they think that's probably what's going on when Abraham. So it's a good time to flourish. So little fights. And then you also had, like, the other thing Canaan's known for is, like, so if polytheism's a big deal in Mesopotamia, polytheism's, like, a huge deal in uh, Canaan. Because, so, everybody, so you got the high gods. Like, everybody has Baal. Everyone has Astaroth. Everybody has like the, the big deities. Everybody has them because like like Baal's a storm god. Everybody has a storm that comes over them. So you know there we go. Um, like Astaroth was the fertility god. Everybody needs crops. Okay, so like everybody's gonna worship. But then everybody would have like their little deities over their little space. Um, 
some people, like, there's that scene when Jacob wrestles with an angel. Remember that? And liberals look at that and it's like, ah, that's not God. That's some little demi demon thing, local deity who guarded this river. Like, and then somehow then, then someone went through and changed it to God, but it wouldn't have been like God, God. So there's like some little demon. So it just kind of tells you like, I think it's God because it was God. Um, but this whole idea that there's like these little demons like kind of running around this little s- sphere. And, and so it's all about like, like this, you know, this God mostly controls your little plot of land, so you make that little guy happy. You'd have your little, like, specific little idol for your little God. And, like, if you ever wanted to really make a culture feel unprotected, go in, steal their idol, and walk away. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Like, our God will not protect us because they're not here anymore, and this is his land. Or later, there's, like, this scene in First, Second uh, Kings 17, we'll read it later, where uh, Israel gets deported from uh, Samaria and the Babylonians sends people in to go live there and then God sends lions and they start shredding the people and in judgment and they say we must have upset the local God go find a priest so they go find a priest in exile and bring the priest back and say okay how do we make your God happy and he says and so he pulls out the Torah and says okay this is the law that God wants you to abide by there. we'll do it to keep the lions off of us right because we made this little deity mad and so a lot of times, like, these tribal fights are, like, because they have these little local deities and you don't want to make the local deity mad. So there were lots and lots and lots and lots of them in Canaan. Yeah, and then I say, like, what happened when worshiping these gods? Kind of hard to tell. Like, we know on the, like, on, like, the bad end, like, so Baal, um, there's, like, certain things that you do to make Baal happy, and then um, with Ashtoreth, the fertility god, if you want bumper crops, that's the one that was associated with ritualistic prostitution. So, like, you enact that, and then it makes the gods say, oh, yes, we forgot, we're supposed to do that too. And then, like, like fertility would rain upon your land. It's kind of weird, but weird for us, normal to them. Um, but then on the extreme end, you'd have, like, Molech, who was one of the local gods, who was, like, a god of war, which, like, if you want to appease Molech, you're gonna like you'd sacrifice your child by fire on his altar, and you say how barbaric, but <clears throat> we do that too. Probably murder more babies than they ever did with Molech. All right, so that's the Canaanites. So um, in God's eyes, so God says to Abraham, "I'm going to give you this land in Canaan, but I'm going to give them time to repent, or I'm going to give them time for the sins to come to fullness." Honestly, like there's a lot of debauchery, a lot of like sinful practice, like above and beyond in Canaan that the other nations really don't have, that, re- that moves God to judgment sooner with Canaan than they do with the other nations. So, All right, so that's, that's Canaan. Philistines. Okay, so you're like, reading the Bible, no, no, nothing about Philistines, nothing about Philistines, nothing. Philistines one day, like, wait, where do these people come from? Yeah, that's a good question. Where do they come from? Okay, so, so everybody living their little lives, no one... Like, they've got, like, little, you know, wine skirmishes, like, push a little border this way, that way. And all of a sudden, Egypt has this huge fight with what they call the sea people. These people come in on boats and try to take over Egypt. Egypt repels them. I think I have it on the next picture. Yeah, like, this is a combat quality, I understand. But, so what you're seeing is, like, Egypt with their composite bows. And then on the other side, you've got all these boats with these people with these plumed hats. 
I'm, I'm explaining what you should see in the picture. It's not very clear. And they, they got these plumed hats with these duck feathers, and like their boats have like these duck faces. And so like these sea people that are associated with like um, aquatic uh, animals, aquatic birds. So Egypt has this massive skirmish, and, and to them it's this great victory. They repelled this nation, because you know, Egypt's getting a little bit weird about people trying to come and take over their land, because people were trying to do it, the high coasts, right? So these, these people come in from the sea, on boats, you know, disembark, try to capture it, get pushed back. Okay, so sea people come in, they can't take over Egypt, so they say, where are we going to go? Oh, well, we'll just go up here. So right around here are the Philistines. They just kind of park it up there. And um, people say they're probably um, Phoenicians and or kind of, so the Greeks, like an early, like proto-Greek nation, um, because of the boats, Greeks had their boats, and they would like be fighting these little sea warfare things. And um, so, some people say they came up from Syria. That's probably not the case. Um, so, the Philistines. There's that scene where Goliath says, "Send out your best man and let me best them." There's actually another ancient text that has like a similar uh, story in it, and that's the Iliad with Troy. Like, so um, you know, oh, I'm forgetting their names all of a sudden. Paris is a wimpy boy, right? <laughs> it's one of the best scenes of the book. So, like, um, they have um, Achilles shows up. It's like, send out Paris. I'll tell you, you know, one-on-one. Let, let's just, just be a battle and get it over with. And Paris says, yes, I shall. And he shows up in this, like, <laughs> leopard leotard. <laughs> and, the people, and the guy's like, nope, nope, you're not going out to fight for us. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but, like, that whole idea of representative warfare, like, the first time we hear about it in, like, society is like with these Greeks, like send out your best man. And here's Goliath saying, send out your best man. Let's take it on. You're like, oh, interesting. They have like these similar war practices. And so, um, so yeah, so it's probably like this proto-Greek nation who come and get this, trying to, you know, get their cut right, of land. Well, um, at this point, Israel is established as a nation. And there is a tribe who got the coastal land called Dan. Okay, I don't know, like, until someone pointed this out, I wasn't paying attention. Dan started off near the coast, but by the time you get into, like, Kings, or even actually Judges, First and Second Samuel, Dan's up north. It's like, wait, 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 I thought you had the coastal land, but now you're up north. Ah, right? So Dan was sitting there on the coast, and these boats show up, and they have, so there's, like, this, this migration of Dan from the coast um, up to the north end of Israel. And Samson is a Danite, and he's the judge who's like, one, the most involved with the Philistines, but also their feared enemy, right? So, so that happens. And then in the book of Judges, I have this um, halfway down the sheet here, it says, in the Song of Deborah. So remember Deborah and Barak. So like, no judge would rise up to fight the Philistines. And so Deborah says, okay, well, we're going to go do this. And so then she, you know, she, she trusts in the Lord to deliver his people. And so after their fight, she, there's, like, the song of Deborah. And in Judges 5, she, like, kind of goes, like, where were you? And where were you? And where were you? Like, pointing out all the tribes who didn't want, want to get involved. Because at this point, like, um, Israel's, like, States, not a nation. There's no king ruling them all. They have like their own little sovereign, little space. And it's like, where was Ephraim? 
Where is Manasseh? Where, you know, why, like Moab, why, like, why didn't you guys come over to help out? And so she says about, so it says Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? And so they're like, ah, oh. like, here's, here's Gilead. So the archivist said, like, one of the things, like, you know, that Dan was, like, getting on ships and trucking up here and then walking over to transplant themselves right there. That's one of the things that archaeologists have tracked down. So the Philistines were displacing the land, and um, Saul, when Saul becomes king, like most of the conflicts between the Philistines who are trying to come inland and the Israelites saying, "Uh uh-uh. Okay, so eventually, like, God, like, so Saul, there's a lot of conflict, and God through David um, pretty much stopped the Philistines from, like, coming forward. They kind of had some decisive blows. Apparently, they were... Philistines decided they were mostly happy with their land. So the Philistines, kind of like, after they're trying to push into Israel, get stopped, 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 and then finally, okay. And they, and they call it good. And they, they basically just live on the stretch of land on the coast. And they're, they're kind of there the rest of the time. Israel stops fighting with them, but they're pretty much there. Um, because the, when the Babylonians and the Syrians come down, they note fighting um, Philistines. So... Um, so man migrated. Oh yeah, so as late as so I say here, like the Philistines come in, like we see them as late as in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles is like the oldest history in the Old Testament. Um, so like so the Philistines pretty much stay out of the fights until like Israel gets destabilized a little bit, and then they start trying to pick off some more land. So Syria comes in, and Philistines say, "Hey, what a great time to try to pick off a couple cities." So they do that in Chronicles 28. So, Okay. All right, we're about to hit the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians, which are the big names. So this is our top of the hour. So five minutes, and then we'll get into the next people group. Mike's on, yeah. So, so the question is how? Well, we're studying this. Yes. Yes. Oh, if there was, yeah, I don't know. Well, I think probably at this point we're getting there. Because I think if the people walked over that ice bridge, it's a little bit hard. Because it's it's hard because the, our dating system and their dating system are a little bit different. Uh, so if you believe in like evolution. So, like, some, some of the dating, well, because of the way they do carbon dating and stuff like that, like, we assume things are closer, happen closer. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I have, yeah, I can go, yes, let's talk about carbon dating. <laughs> like, 
like, I don't, okay, so gosh, man, let's talk about math. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, there, there's a, there's a massively huge assumption going on that I cannot, like, I cannot go there. Yeah. So like some of it is like how old were things happening when things happened. So this stuff, this stuff, like everybody's pretty much in agreement on because you got records. I have no clue. No clue. Yep. I will I plead the fifth. Okay. So the Assyrians. So at this point it's like skirmish, skirmish like the only like real attempt for like massively taking over any chunk of land would probably was the failed attempt of the uh Philistines, right? Or the Phoenicians probably. Okay, so no one ever tries to create an empire where they take over everything because first of all, who wants that headache? Right, trying to get like all these people groups to like follow, like obey you. But the first people who tried and were successful was Assyria. So Assyria, capital is Nineveh. Okay. Now, so this, yeah, okay. So this is Assyria. I've always wondered why the names are similar, but yeah. So Assyria and Syria are two different places. And Syria never really becomes that huge. Assyria becomes like gargantuan. And um, so Syria. Okay, so this is where like th- there's two reasons why this part feels really dense and thick. First of all, their names are huge. So like Ashunarsipal, like okay, Tiglath Pileser Shalamanzar the third. Like the names are gargantuan. Okay. That's the first reason. The second reason is because things get so intertwined with what's going on in in the book of the in the Bible. So like these kings are having a very real effect on events that are happening in the Bible. So like we so at this point we can talk about Philistines and broad, but we don't care which king followed which king followed which king because the Philistines they didn't really play a huge role in what was going on. But for the Syrians, like which king followed which king followed which king is really helpful because it tells us like what was going on as you know, Judah and Jerusalem are involved in these events. Um, so the first thing to kind of keep a note, so the Syrians don't show up until after there's a split between Israel and Judah. So after Solomon, you have Rehoboam, who was, uh, Solomon probably overworked his people. Rehoboam said, I'm going to work even harder than my dad. And they said, toodles, we're going. So they, they split up into two groups. And then, uh, so there's uh, Jeroboam, and then I think one or two kings down, there's this king, Omri, who's the father of Ahab. Okay. Now, interestingly, the Bible has very little to say about Omri. Just like, uh, brought in false gods, who cares? Right? Just, yeah, yeah, bad man. Uh, he's known, but he's probably, the two things he's probably most known for in the Bible, he has a son named Ahab, and he set up his son with Ahab with this lady called Jezebel. Like, that's what he's known for. But interestingly, um, Omri is probably one of the greatest kings of Israel. So uh, right now I'm going to say Israel and Judah. So Judah's south, Israel's north. So Omri, like from what we can tell from records of other nations, like Omri was kind of like a big deal. He's like a big king, and God's not impressed. But archaeology, he did a lot to like, he built armies, and he moved, he built a capital in Samaria with like big walls and fortresses. Um, so Omri's this big deal, and Assyria, so, okay, so let's start getting these names down now, okay. So during Omri's reign, the Syrian king Arshur Narsipal began a formal conquest 
thinking like, I need money. How can I get money? Oh, let me go stomp on Syria. So he pushes into Syria, does pretty good. So now, their theory goes like this. They show up at your door and say, we're going to fight. You say, I don't want to fight. And they say, pay us money. Or you say, forget it, let's fight. And then you fight, and then you completely devastate the town, try to kill everybody, make it as brutal and bloody and torturous as possible, so that when you show up the next town, you say, you want to fight? Yeah, and, like, and so you know, say, pay to say no, or fight. Okay, so he pushes into Syria, and like, it was okay. And he got that far, which was pretty good for the day. Um, but then he, he, he conquers up to about here, and they say he sends raiding parties kind of down, like not in like formal, like, hey, let's go take some, just like, what's going on down there? And so he comes down, and, his, and suddenly on Assyria's radar is Omri's land. King Omri is like, wow, what a nice looking capital you have. So like, so like in the back of Assyria's mind is this country called Omri's land, which we know as Syria. Okay, so he tries to do it. He does okay, and he, you know, he makes people pay tribute. He goes back home. Okay, then the next Assyrian king, Shalamanzar the third. Okay, so you know, you got this king, good general, comes, says, "Do you want to fight? No. Okay, then you're gonna pay me tribute, pay tribute, pay tribute." And the news comes to you that said king died. And you're like, "I'm not paying tribute anymore." Okay, so then, like, his son, Shalmanzar III, has to go reestablish tribute, saying, like, no, nope, same armies, same skill set. So Shalmanzar comes in, and he's not, he's a little bit more successful than his dad. He gets to Syria, but he gets blocked by a coalition of 26 kings. And in Assyrian records, he's got a list of who the kings were. Let's keep a record. Assyrians, Assyrians are nothing other, like, if you remember from nothing else besides concrete, it's like they take fastidious records and they're boring records. They're never really, like, wordy. When the Greeks come along, they tell these great tales, like the Spartans at Thermopylae, and they have these great stories. But the Syrians like, so-and-so showed up, and I killed so-and-so. And it, but whenever they want to, like, tell you, like, kind of the, the details, they draw them on their walls. So, like, when the kings, when you go into the king's court and you, you're going to look on the walls and you have, like, what they're called reliefs, of like conquered nations and like all the torturous ways they killed them as you're walking to go see the king. And you're like, uh, yeah. So they're trying to like intimidate you. It's totally a skill set. Okay. Okay. But the, so he has like this prestigious records of like, okay, here's all the kings that showed up against me. Here's the size of the army they brought against me, men and chariots. The second biggest king in that coalition was none other than Ahab. Ahab brought the second biggest army and the most chariots to that battle. And they stopped... Shaman's are the third, right there. Okay. Um, so then Ahab has this great little victory. Like, he's the second biggest king in this coalition. He's thinking, like, hey, hey, pretty good. So then Ahab tries to go down and, who's he attack? Syria. So he tries to go attack someone in Syria, and it and dies. <laughs> so so Ahab, that's, and that, that's recorded for us in the kings. So Ahab says, great fight. Let's do it again. And he tries to go take some towns in Syria, and he gets killed. And so, so much for Ahab. So then Jehu, which is Ahab's son, um, has a smaller army than his dad did, because his dad lost some of it. And uh, Shalmanzar III says, oh, let's try this again. So Shalmanzar, he comes in 
Again, but this time he's not met with a coalition of the 26 kings because 26 kings who were like banded together started fighting against each other. And now they're not like banding together anymore. So then like Syria says, let's try again and just marches right in. Has no problem. They push through and they push down the coast. So they make some contact with Jerusalem at this point and Judah, but not a whole, like not a whole lot. They, they basically say, do you want to fight? Israel says, no, have some money. It's like, okay, see you later. Okay, so that's, but that's kind of like the first major, like, interactions with Assyria, with Israel. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Same Jehu. That would really be a, yeah, that's a good question. Pro- chances, okay, chances are, chances are probably not. Yeah, because the kings had lots of wives and lots of kids, right? Yeah. Go go look in the kings again. You, you, you could probably read it, yeah. Yeah, so Shalmanzar the third comes down, and Jehu just pays for non-conflict. And so he says, yep, we'll pay you tribute. Yeah, Ted. Oh, that's said 26. I think he brought 26,000 men. That's where the number came from. Or something like that. Thank you. Okay, so, uh, good question. This price, yeah, so it's like hefty, but not huge. At this point, they pay a nice sum, but not a huge exorbitant sum. But when things get closer and closer, they get they start paying more and more. So this is just like, I don't want to come, like, I, I really don't want to come marching in eastward, and Jesus said, not a problem, let me send you some tribute. So, and the Syrians recorded how much they gave. Yeah. Okay, uh-huh. So money in the form of goblets and, yeah, it was more like silver and gold and goblets and, yeah, shields and, like, just, you know, trading goods. Yeah, okay. So then Shalomans III, he does, you know, he does better than anybody has done, but then he, like, kind of disappears. And so, so at this point, everybody assumes a Syria threat had been abated. So, um, you know, they try a few times. They don't really pull off a great campaign. Okay, and then, like, they hear nothing from Assyria. Okay, so, meanwhile, Assyria's really busy with things going up in, like, their neck of the woods. So they stop, like, dealing with, like, these conquests. And so everybody's like, okay, no problem. Okay, and, and um, around this time is, like, when God starts saying judgment, like, you know, you're going to be judged, you're going to be judged. Like, there's a nation coming from the north. And I'm like, <laughs> what, Assyria? Okay, because it's not like Assyria had dished out the best it could serve. Um, but... Enter Tiglath Pileser III. Okay, so Tiglath Pileser III did what, like, he actually pulled it off. He Tiglath Pileser, he actually comes in and he conquers all the way down to Egypt, from Mesopotamia to Egypt. Okay, and Tiglath Pileser, he's the one who's like, so he's the one who's definitely known for being brutal. Like, like a lot of it goes without saying, but like, like you know, men, women, children. Like if you break, if you if you decide to fight with him instead of paying him, he'll come in and then like, and then just release with like torture scene after torture scene after torture scene, and then like he'd just have, like cut the head off the king and take it to his court, and the king's head would be sitting next to him, and like yeah, all these other things. So, um, like a series got this like really violent vibe to them. Oh, in in that time relative time of peace before Tiglath Pileser. That's when Jonah goes up to Nineveh, by the way. So they had come in, caused all this havoc, and God goes up to them and says, want to repent? Like, I'll give you the chance. And, and you can see why 
Jonah is like, um, do you understand who you're asking to let repent? And so there's a time of repentance in Nineveh, and then apparently they got over it. All right. All right, so one of, one of the things about Tiglath-Pileser is that Judah and uh, Israel, so you got these two nations, they had like two different foreign policies about how to deal with Assyria. So Israel wanted to fight. Which you can understand why they want to fight. They're the ones closest to Assyria. So they asked Judah, hey, do you want to join together and fight Assyria? And Judah's like, we're paying. Like, we're not going to fight these people. Why would we do that? So, so Israel, uh, Israel says, let's fight. Judah says, let's pay them. So Israel attacks Judah. Sure, like what a great response. Okay. So they, they, they start fighting with each other. Okay. Um, so then Judah asks, get this. So they're like, Judah says, hey, Assyria, can you help us? Because we want to pay you. <laughs> so why don't you... Uh, so, so Judah asks Assyria for help, and they strip the temple, the, the temple to do this. So they, they start, like, that's when the temple starts losing some of its grandeur. It's like, we have these beautiful silver shields. Would you like them? Why don't you come and like, uh, take out Israel? So Tiglath-Pileser dies. And... So one of the things that they would also, Assyria is the first group to start doing, is they would take, so they come, they conquer. Um, because they are, their eyes on conquering lots and lots of land, it's really hard, you have to like leave some type of structure in place. So they do two things. They would, first of all, scare you, legitimately. And the second thing they do is they deport like royal people and then set up their own king. So like, you know, so sometimes it'd be like, uh, who's the ruling family? Okay, we're going to kill you, and then the rest of you, we're going to send you up to Nineveh, see you later, never come back. And then, oh, second cousin, do you want to be king? Like, and then you and feel like, now you, uh, second cousin, feel like you owe Assyria, great, because you, you had no chance of being the king, and now you're the king. You're like, hey, that's great, so I'm going to side with Assyria. And so then they can march on and conquer the next land. So they just put some, like, kind of tertiary person in charge. Okay, so they, they did that. Okay. So Tiglath-Pileser dies. And then all these states that he set up for paying tribute, so the vassal states, so they think the same thing can't happen twice. Wrong. Uh, Shalamanzar V, and then you might, if you know anything about this time of history, Sargon II. So you got Tiglath-Pileser III. Like, no one's going to pull this off twice. There's no way you're pulling this off twice. And Sargon says, yes, we can. So Sargon the second, so Shalmanzar the fifth, he starts the conquest into Israel, but somewhere Shalmanzar the fifth disappears, and Sargon the second, his younger brother, ends up being the guy who actually conquers Israel. And he shows up at Samaria, because that's their capital. He shows up to Samaria as one of the vassal states that was not interested in paying up, and he conquered them. So, um, no. So the, the description in Second Kings 17, like, so, you know, why did this happen? And so, like, the prophet in Second Kings says, the reason why God allowed this to happen was all the rampant idolatry that had infested the land. So one of the things that God had set up Israel to be, so they're on the I-5, right? And they were going to be kind of, as it were, like a light to the world. Nation passes by, nation passes by, and they see this monotheistic religion. Like, so, so, like, if Israel had been up here, 
they, they'd have it that corner of the world, they probably wouldn't have a whole lot of access to these other ones, or you'd just be another fighting state. So instead, they're on the, kind of like this freeway. No one really, really wants to like set up a huge kingdom in the freeway. And, and so people are walking by, and you get to share, like, you know, we follow Yahweh, and Yahweh is this great God. Um, but Israel, instead of doing that, said, oh, nice God, I'll take it. Nice God, I'll take it. And they just, like, every nation that came walking by, like, oh, I like your God, too. No, I, they took everybody's gods. And all the nations looking at them, like, you're ridiculous. Like, you got, you got Canaanite gods, you got Assyrian gods, you got Egyptian gods, you got, like, you like, like, do you have any fidelity to your God at all? Like, you're apparently any God that shows up, you'll take it. So, like, that was Israel's big thing. So, so God says, okay, like, I'll, if you're going to behave like the other nations, I'll treat you like the other nations. And he warned them, he warned them, and he, he kicked them out of the land. Right. Calves, right? Yeah. <laughs> you would think. They say where the, one the, where the, so there's a north calf and a south calf, and where the calf was looking at the south, you could see uh, the Temple Mount from, like, line of sight. You could see, like, the peak in the distance. Like, you just have to go to that peak and walk down, and you'd be at the temple. But they would stop right there, worship the calf, Yahweh, and they're like, yeah. So then, so, at this point, so, Assyria comes in and takes out Israel and has a massive deportation. Like, just all of them. Sends them everywhere. Like, you people, obviously, are not going to be compliant. So we're just going to spread you out over all these nations, be our slaves, live, whatever. And so then they bring their own people, or maybe some other deportees, could be both, right? And send some other people to go live. And so they take over, like the city of Samaria, take over the lands, take over. So they're like, oh, nice place, we'll take it. And then the lions come, right? So the lions come, and they say, "Um, we have upset the local god. What should we do about it? Go find a priest. So they find a priest who had been a priest false priests, unfortunately. Um, and so they drag him back and say, teach us how to appease this God. So he gives them a bunch of stuff. So at this point, like, there, there's like some Israelites rejoin with some Assyrians. There's probably some intermarriage. There's a syncretism of religion. So they didn't give up worshiping their false gods. It's like they just brought Yahweh in as part of the deity coalition. And so this is the Samaritans that we later on, like fast forward in time, like, these are the Samaritans. These are the ones that, you can see why Israel, like Judah, is not very interested in associating with it. First of all, they're mixed blood. And second of all, they have, like, a mixed religion. And, like, they have this totally different view of everything. So, that's where that kind of antagonism came in. All right. So, Sargon takes out. Okay. So then, Sargon II dies. And all the vassal states rebel, thinking the same thing couldn't happen three times. Mostly wrong, okay. They were mostly wrong. Because then Sennacherib comes, so he's the next king. Sennacherib comes back down, and he conquers the Philistines. And Judah had, you know, part of um, Assyria coming and taking out Israel is Judah said, hey, we're going to pay. Okay, so they stopped paying. um, Sennacherib comes down. He comes this way, up to Philistines. He takes out the Philistines. And then... He turns eastward and starts heading in towards uh, Jerusalem because they have rebelled. And uh, there's this city on the 
western side of Israel called Lachish, and there's a few more, but Lachish is like, like, it's like one of their guardian cities. Like, here's a major road, and we put a city right here, so if an army comes through, they're going to have to take out the city. To them, it was like one of like, their main forms of defense. So Sennacherib comes in and destroys Lachish. And Lachish, there's, they actually have correspondence. It's really kind of depressing. We're like, um, signal fires are being lit from the other defending cities, and we're wondering what's going on. And like, like it's the city's being destroyed, being destroyed as it gets closer. And then silence from Lachish. Um, so Sennacherib, when he comes in, he, he, sends, he himself attacks um, Lachish, and he sends a general to go attack Jerusalem. And they have like this kind of showdown where like, with, uh, this one Hezekiah is king, and they have like, your God's pathetic. Why would you God let you be destroyed like this? And, you know, Hezekiah and his people, they mourn and they pray. And then Sennacherib shows up, and they're doing some more mocking. But then, all of a sudden, like, it says the angel, like, overnight the angel of the Lord came, and they, like, destroy the army of Sennacherib. Okay, so, the, the Syrians are nothing else, nothing less than um, fastidious about their records, but there's a weird silence right about now. Which usually, like, so, like, records telling, like, this happened, this happened. And then this happened, like, there's, like, this, like, um, what, what, what just happened? Say that again? What just happened? So they have no record of what happened. Like, what happened to Snacker's army? Well, one thing they knew is, like, Snacker had, like, had a rush home because he started having problems with um, the Chaldeans. Or the, um, yep, Chaldeans. Chaldeans are coming this way. So, so something happens at the gates of Jerusalem where Snacker has... Like loses a bunch of people. He hears news that his his uh, homeland in Nineveh is being a, having pressure from um, the Babylons is what it's going to turn out to be. So he's got to rush home and go deal with that. So like hands off, can't deal with Jerusalem. So interestingly, so Judah said there like, "Yay, God saved us!" And then the Chaldeans they heard like, "So Sennacherib was at the gates of your city, suddenly destroyed, and now you are like." And, and they're, like, they're back home. So they, so they send an envoy to Jerusalem saying, hey, we're fighting the Assyrians. And Judah says, oh, yeah. And there's probably some guys like, how that happens? We have a great God. We're really a great God. Why don't you tell us about him? And so Hezekiah is like, well, let me show you our temple. And like shows off all the wealth of the temple. And God tells Hezekiah, that was pride. You shouldn't have done that. Okay. Because now all of a sudden, the envoys go back. And guess what they have on their minds? Like, huh. So after Assyria, there's really rich nations down south. Got it. So they don't forget what they saw. Okay, so then Assyria has to go back and deal with this fight. That's when Manasseh shows up. Manasseh's like that not cool king who like sacrificed the kids to Molech, but repented. And I think so he was handed over. So uh, Assyria comes back drags off um, Manasseh, says Ershadon, who's the youngest son of Sennacherib. Um, Ershadon is considered a neo-Assyrian king because this is kind of it for them. Like, he's like post-Assyria. Like, he, he comes in, takes out Manasseh, but like, like, like give it a decade, Assyria's over. So, two things happen. Uh, Assyria's getting attacked by Babylon, and Assyria's getting attacked by this group called the Scythians up north. So they got pressure from the, like, they lose a bunch of land in the north, they lose a bunch of land in the south, and then eventually the Babylonians just come knocking on the door and take it over. So, 
Yeah. He was murdered. <laughs> His youngest youngest son, Eschardon. <laughs> Bummer. All right. Yeah, okay, good. So we mentioned all this. Okay, so the Babylonians then. Okay, so Syria is like, done. Okay, so then enter the Babylonians. So, now, you figure, okay, Assyria... Like, is the first nation, like, just take over and create an empire and get lots of money from it. So then, like, another nation says, huh, what a great idea. Okay, so that was Babylon, kind of rival city down on the Euphrates. So, um, Babylon conquers Assyria. Okay, while he's conquering Assyria, there's a time of peace. And there's Josiah. Remember Josiah's reform in the kings? So he's the one who finds the temple and he revives. He, there's a scene that's kind of weird. He goes up, Josiah goes into what used to be Israel, goes to Bethel where all the false worship is going on and like tears down the calf, picks up the bones of the prophets and burns it. Like just like desecrates and fulfillment of one of God's prophecies. Like, wait, why does Josiah have like, can just walk up into Israel and like go do this? It's because the Syrians aren't there monitoring everything. The Syrians are losing their fight. So Josiah has like, they're able to flourish. He's got some free reign. Okay. And so all's quiet on the northern front. No, western front. All's quiet on the northern front. Um, but Babylon takes out Nineveh and starts marching in towards Syria. And Egypt decides, you know what? We're kind of sick of this. So Egypt, for one of the first times in this whole like, story, they actually march an army. They pick up an army, and they're going to go meet Babylon up here. So Egypt starts marching up north, and for some weird reason, Josiah sees Egypt and says, let's fight. And the Pharaoh says, don't fight. We're, like, God told us to go fight Babylon up here in Syria. But Josiah still fights, and Josiah dies in battle. Remember the stray arrow, like, strikes him and Yeah, so he dies in battle. And then, so Pharaoh says, so then it's kind of a weird moment. Josiah dies, and you think, like, Pharaoh would be like, hold on a second, Babylon, let's go conquer Israel, and we'll be right back and go to... No. So they kill the king, and the Pharaoh says, hey, you want to make a deal? We need help fighting Babylon. So, so they make this deal, or this proposal to Jerusalem, saying, hey, why don't we join forces? Okay. And this becomes like this running motif in like the prophets and um, in the kings that God says, rely on me. And the rulers say, hey, let's make a deal with Egypt. God says, don't listen to Egypt. Rely on me. I'll deliver you. And they're like, so, so right here, it's like, should we make a deal with Egypt? No. God says no. And it's like, make a deal with Egypt. Okay. And Egypt goes and gets crushed. Battle of Carchemish. Crushed. Okay. Babylon goes, do what? You made a, you made a what with who? So Babylon now sees Jerusalem as an enemy. So Nebuchadnezzar, who is this king who's, who's winning this battle, so Nebuchadnezzar comes down, shows up at the door of Jerusalem. All right, so, was, so he does the extract tribute. So it's like, do you want to fight? Maybe a little fighting. Like, you know what? We're not going to do this. So he extracts tribute, demands loyalty from Judah, and then... Like, 
at this point, like, Judah is not the main concern. Like, so Nebuchadnezzar's like, coming down, like, knocks on the door, said, hey, you're causing problems. You're, you're like, you're, I'm going to set up my vassal king. You can pay me tribute. We're good. Israel says, Judah says, we're good. And Nebuchadnezzar marches down to Egypt. He's going to conquer Egypt. And he fails. And then Judah, and then Judah goes, we rebel too, because they think Egypt's going to win. So, so Nebuchadnezzar, like, he's marching back home, like, with his failed attempt to conquer Egypt. And on his way home, he stops at Jerusalem, who just rebelled against him. Like, yeah, see, timing's everything. You should rebel after the army passes you. <laughs> like, that's when you rebel. They probably thought they'd get, like, like, they do, like, this pincher movement and get Nebuchadnezzar's trap between them. So, like, let's do it, Egypt. And Egypt's, like, not into it. So, bad move. So he shows up at Jerusalem, and this is when he conquers it for the first time. So he conquers it. He deports a large coalition. So this is when Daniel gets deported, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and Ezekiel gets deported. So he sends a huge group of them back to Babylon. And then he leaves some, like, Secondary tertiary people in charge over there. So, so this is like so now you have like this split prophetic ministry. You got Ezekiel up here. You got Jeremiah down here. Now, they're nations apart. God gives them like kind of similar messages. Don't go to Egypt. Don't ally on Egypt. So he's saying it up here. Jeremiah saying it down here. Interestingly, Ezekiel the first in chapter one, it's like um, the glory of the Lord leads the temple. So God's glory, which always rests in the temple, was uh, like, he's sitting on the Euphrates, and behold, this chariot comes with all his glory. He's like, the glory of the Lord? What's it doing over here? God says, I left my temple. And he's like, why did you leave your temple? And he goes, like, and God gives him a vision of what's going on in the temple. And like the high priest and all these people are involved in all these pagan practices. And God's like, I'm not going to stay in my temple if they got all these pagan practices going on. So they have, like, so there's those interesting... Nebuchadnezzar splits them up, and you have these two ministries going on. So when you read Jeremiah, you're reading about what's happening down here in Jerusalem. When you read Ezekiel, you're talking about what's happening up here in Babylon. When you read Daniel, it's what's going up here in ba- uh, Babylon at this point. Yep? Bye. Five hundred miles, but like you go up and around, yeah. Politics. Oh, Egypt. Yeah. Well, because I think the the ambition of Babylon is clear. They're, they're, yeah, it's really obvious that they want to take over, like, create a huge empire. So, like, one of the things is, like, who gets to become the king of kings? Is one of their, yeah. And so, the one who he ends up, like, feeling like he did it and calling himself the king of kings is Cyrus. It's like, I did it, I am now the king of kings, right? So, um, yeah, so, like, it's, it's obvious that they want, man, the one who really did it was Alexander the Great for a little bit. And then the one who's really going to do it for reals, reals is going to be Jesus, right? He's going to be the king of kings. So, nice try. All right, so he splits them up. Now, you would think, like, so at this point, you think Israel should have learned its lesson, okay? 
But then, so like, don't rely with Egypt, don't rely with Egypt. Like, the vassal king who, who's left here decides they're going to side with Egypt again. Okay, because like, cause now, like, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's up here. So they break away from Nebuchadnezzar and ally themselves with Egypt. You think they learned, but they didn't. So Nebuchadnezzar picks up his army, walks back, and this is like the big raising. This is like when he goes in and he destroys, destroys, destroys. He tears down the temple to like to the bottom, burns everything, deports as many people as they can, um, leaves basically. He doesn't leave like tertiary rulers in charge. He says, "Hey, poor dude sitting on the corner, your king." Like something basically the way, like, oh, you like beggar, you get that person's land. He gives it to like the poor, poor people. Okay, so there was a small coalition. So he sets up a little governor of like this guy, like governor, right? It's like, so so he's now in charge of all that he surveys, right? And there was like some like tertiary rulers that had escaped, and then two months later they show back up, they murder the governor, and all the people there are going like, oh, are you? kidding me. Like, why did you just kill the governor? Because now, they're pretty sure Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back again. So then they have this conversation. You see, like, one of the chapters in Jeremiah is like, what should we do? And Jeremiah says, God will protect you. Stay in Jerusalem. And some people, we should go to Egypt. And they're like, we're going to Egypt. So the, the remaining group of them freaked out that Nebuchadnezzar is coming back yet again. Pick up, and they actually drag Jeremiah with them. Like, that's a bummer, because he did not want to go. So they, they, they dragged themselves down to Egypt. So that's how there ended up being a uh, remnant of Jews in Egypt. It's because they were fearful, and they wouldn't rely on God again. And so, and my mom was telling me this morning that she's reading, like, out of Egypt, I called my son. So, like, the thing when Jesus goes to Egypt and comes back, representing, like, the, like Jesus who stands stands where he should be. Like, he's what Israel should have been. Like, he doesn't stay in Egypt, he comes back to Israel, something like that. That's kind of interesting. Okay. So Nebuchadnezzar, the great man. Now, he also has that insanity thing, right? Where he goes crazy. This, this is like one of my favorite, like right now, considering uh, what's going on with everything in politics in the world. This to me, I, like this chapter in Daniel, as to me is like one of the most fascinating ones. So Daniel 4. So, um, obviously, Nebuchadnezzar has some interactions with Yahweh. There's, like, that's, that much is clear. And he's kind of understanding it. And Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. Or 29. At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, and the king answered and said, so it sounds like there's a conversation is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I built it and it's for my glory. Yeah, like, um, and while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from you and you shall be driven among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know for the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was filled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And at the end, and at the end of the days, I, so verse person here, so Nebuchadnezzar's writing, 
And this is actually, this is not written in Hebrew. This is written in Aramaic. So it even changes language. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and, I would, and still more greatness was added to me. Added? I think he's learned a lesson. It was added to him. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And so, like, at this, so, like, as you see nations rising, it's like, like, God made Babylon, God created it for his glory. Like, interesting. That's interesting. He's like, Russia, God made Russia for his glory. Like, 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 this is my dad speaking, like, like, like every movie that has a Russian, that's like, it's the Russian. Like, he's the bad guy. Like, he never got over the Cold War, right? So, it's like, so you're like, even public enemy number one, right? God made Russia for his glory. All right. So, um, Nebuchadnezzar, okay, so Nebuchadnezzar dies. Oh, so during, so by the way, there's no record of Nebuchadnezzar going crazy, but there is record of lots of internal conflict in Babylon during that time, like intergovernmental disputes. Okay. So Nebuchadnezzar's son has a short and sweet reign before his assassination. Then there are a few more short reigns ended in assassination before this guy named Nabonidus ascends to the throne. Now, Nabonidus is not technically from, like, the royal lineage. He's just some court dude. Um, Like, so... From all reports about this guy, he's known about two things. He's old and he's odd, but he happens to be king. So he seems to be more interested in archaeology and in trying to track down where ancient gods came from than he seems to be in running his own town. So like he ends up setting up uh, Belshazzar as a regent king, like why he's out like at these ancient oasis trying to track down these gods. And uncovering certain cities. Now, one of his bad moves is like when he tries to get at this one city and he can't get there because he doesn't have like the army at the right place at the right time. So he writes down to Cyrus the Persian and says, hey, were you at all interested in this like plot of land up here? You might consider taking it. And when you take it, I'd like to get to like, I would like to go explore this area and do some like, you know, digging. Now, got that got Cyrus the Persian thinking like, huh, the Syrians can do it. The Babylonians can do it. Maybe I can do it. Yeah. So ne- Nebuchadnezzar weirdly gets the idea stuck in Cyrus's head that he wants to go conquer land. Okay. But so um, Cyrus has like this totally different strategy than the Syrians and the Babylonians. The Syrians and the Babylonians like kill, pillage, kill, pillage, kill, pillage. Fear, 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 fear. Cyrus has a totally different way of doing it. Because at this point, the Syrians and the Babylonians, they've just like, Put people everywhere. Like, you're not at your home at this point. You're like deportees all over the land. So Cyrus comes in and is like, uh, you can fight with me. If you fight, I'll kill you. If you surrender, I'll let you go home. And, and, and if you surrender, I'll kill nobody. And so he plays like good cop 
And like, and it's super successful. Like, he basically is seen as like liberator. So he goes to these, these places and like liberates and says, okay, when, when it's all said and done, I'll let you go home. When it's all said and done, I'll let you go home. So that's Cyrus. He's like the humanitarian conquering king. And so Nabonidus realizes his mistake. And, um, so he comes back from like, and like as a latched ditch effort, like, Cyrus has obviously gained massive momentum in Mesopotamia. And so as a last-ditch effort, he goes around to all the neighboring cities and takes their deity, like their little local god, and puts it in Babylon. Okay, which is like bad move in two ways. First of all, now these people are completely terrified. that They have no protection of the gods. Why would they stand up to Cyrus? So they all just surrender. The second thing is now they're all mad at Nabonidus for taking their deity gods. So they have no reason to trust, like, like listen to battle. Like, Nabonidus just basically clustered all the gods to protect his little hide. So then... Like, Cyrus shows up outside of Babylon. Now, Babylon has got the best fortifications of any city ever, kind of at this point. And they're like, there's no way he's breaking in. We'll just call our allies. Um, they, they, apparently, there's some interaction with, like, the Greeks at this point. Like, the Spartan kings were, like, getting involved in fights at this point. They're, like, shipping over mercenaries. Like, hey, we'll fight with you. So he's like, hey, you know, you know we're going to hold out against you for years. And our allies are going to come, and we're going to defeat you. So they thought they had years. They really had days. They like uh, Cyrus diverted the river, and like when you divert a river, there's like this big gaping hole in the wall, and they just marched right in. And so that was the end of Babylon. And so into the Persians. Okay. So like I said, Persians were the generous overlords. So Cyrus in the book of Ezra, Cyrus is the one who lets Ezra go home. So it's like you know. I like I have in my heart deep grief for the fact that Jerusalem lays in waste. And Cyrus says, Oh yeah. Like that, that was his policy. Yeah, go home. Go home and fix it. And so they go out there. And then Cyrus does more conquering. He conquers the most land at any point, calls himself King of Kings, goes, I think, eastward and runs into this barbarian, well what they call barbarian uh nation, ran by this like this queen. So they got all like the right telling of a good tale, right? And this barbarian queen, he, he offers marriage, says, I don't think so. And he says, okay, well, let's fight. And so, like, as the story goes, they said, okay, these barbarians, they, they, they know warfare, maybe we don't want to fight them. Let's, let's make them a feast and put lots of wine out. So they, they go out in the middle of nowhere and they um, set out, like, this feast with lots of wine and stuff, and then they back away. And so then they... The barbarians come up and like, oh, food, wine, and so they they take it and then like they um, the Persians they pounce on them and say, oh, okay, yeah, so we got you. But they, it was only like one third of the army who kind of fell for the trick, and he apparently captured the son of this empress. And so now Cyrus thinking, aha, I've got your son, so now I've got leverage. Now will you marry me? But then like apparently the the son was able to like. Um, uh, commit suicide. <laughs> so then Cyrus lost his bargaining piece, so they had to go to the fight, and somewhere in that fight he died. And so that was the end of Cyrus. And so, like, as the Greeks like to tell it, Cyrus overreached, and that was his downfall. Right? So, so thus was the end of the king of kings. Okay, so he dies in this conflict with the barbarians, and so that leaves Darius the Great. Darius the Great. He's the next one to show up in the Ezra-Nehemiah sequence. So he shows up so Darius the Great is the one that allows the Jews to go back to rebuild the temple. 
Darius also establishes a highway system with mail, so that speeds things up. And Darius the Great is the one that says, hey, we've conquered all the ancient Near East. What's going on over there in Greece? So he goes and starts going towards Greece. And uh, Darius the Great, uh, oh yeah, the battle, he's, so they try it, but they're thwarted at the Battle of Marathon. You know the marathon, the, the guy who ran to go tell the Greeks the good news and died from exhaustion? Yeah. So that, that battle, that's Darius the Great. So he fails, so he's like, okay, okay, cool, let's try again. So he starts trying to get things ready to go again, and then he dies of old age. And then that leaves his son, Xer- uh, Xerxes, sorry, his name, Xerxes. Okay. So Xerxes is the one who picks up the army that his daddy just built, and he marches into, um, into Greece. And then he has the battle with the Spartans and King Leonidas, the Battle of Thermopylae, where the 300 Spartans hold off Xerxes long enough to rally the, the Greek kings together. So, so that famous Battle of Thermopylae, that's Xerxes. He comes in. He's not actually able to conquer very much, so he has to leave. Comes home disappointed. He comes home, and that's the story of Esther, would be right after that. So he comes home in despair, you know, wants a beautiful wife, has this whole thing. Um, yeah, yeah, he had a great, bad year. Give me a beautiful wife, please. Thank you. Chop, chop. And so, um, but in there, remember, there's an assassination attempt against them, and Mordecai uncovers it. And so, and then, which leads to the fact that Mordecai ends up being high in the court, and he's able to have influence over Esther, and the people are saved. Okay, apparently God was not very concerned with Xerxes making it, because like 15, 20 years later, he got assassinated. The, the, the moral story of Esther is God protects his people, not the foreign kings who take beautiful wives. So, um, uh-huh. Um, yep, that's the Darius. Yep, none other. So Xerxes, so he gets killed in an assassination. So who knows what happened to Esther after that point, right? History does not say. So that leaves Artaxerxes, who is now king. And Artaxerxes is the one that allows Ezra and Nehemiah to finish the rebuilding of the temple because it stagnated. And then they came back and they had like the moral reforms too. Okay. And our exercise, so this actually, this is like the last king at the Old Testament. Okay. So the last Persian king um, that we like involved. So Chronicles, everything. So we're, like we're at Malachi. We're over. Okay. So then um, our exercise, the first has his reign. Maybe like there's like one other Persian king. But the Greeks are like over it. I said, if the Syrians can do it, and the Babylonians can do it, and the Persians can do it, then we can do it too. Right? So then Alexander the Great shows up. Alexander the Great comes marching to the town, takes everything that the uh, Persians had plus more, because they have. So, and Alexander, so, like, so Darius set up the road system. <laughs> Alexander says, thank you. Yeah, nice road, I'll use it. And, and so Alexander's the one who like, makes everybody start speaking Greek so they can all start communicating with each other as well. Alexander, he's successful, he dies young, and he leaves two, uh, two, there's two generals. And it's a question of who he left in charge, but I don't think they cared. So there's uh, the general Ptolemy and the general Seleucid. And so they immediately split the land in two, where the Ptolemies took Egypt and kind of the bottom half of the kingdom. And the Seleucids, they took the top half of like the kingdom. So let's see, like right about here. <laughs> and then they start having this fight. So it goes like this. Ptolemies went for a little bit. Seleucids went for a little bit. 
Ptolemy's went for a little bit. Seleucus went for a little bit. And you see who's caught in the middle? <laughs> poor Jerusalem, right? Yeah, so poor Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's like, like, just like getting conquered by a new king every time they push the boundaries a little bit. And um, during this time, so different things happen, like uprisings, they have, oh, what's that bad king's name, the one that slaughtered pigs on the temple? Yeah, Antiochus, right? Um, who said, the problem is we're not being faithful to the uh, Greek gods. So these like false gods like Yahweh, that's a problem. The reason why we're losing the battle is because of these false gods. So he's like, okay, Jerusalem, shape up. You can't have your own gods anymore. Your temple is now being confiscated to be the temple of Zeus. And that caused lots of problems for him because Israel just went into like full-scale panic mode because you don't take over a temple like that. And so they have battle, battle, battles. And then... And then, like, so Seleucus, Ptolemy is having this fight. And meanwhile, if the Syrians could do it, the Babylonians could do it, if the Persians could do it, the Greeks could do it, then by golly, the Romans can do it. So then, like, the Roman powers start coming into play. And so around this time, a couple of major shifts happen. So first of all, like, Cleopatra and all that. Um, Ptolemy's make some bad, like, alliances. But, like, right when things are like, coming, like, when, when things start crumbling for these powers and Rome starts marching in, there's this one Edomite who just makes all the right bets. And like, like he kind of allies himself with Cleopatra for a little bit, but kind of allies himself over here with a, um, uh, with a, the Caesar, uh, what's the first Caesar name? Uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, Caesar the first one. So the first Caesar, he like, he like, like plays his cards just right. His name was Herod the Great. So, so when it all came tumbling down and, and the Caesar's going, well, I don't want any Seleucus in control and I don't want any Ptolemies in control. Who am I going to leave control of Jerusalem? Herod's like, <coughs> so Herod, that's how Herod gets into power. And the problem in the, in the minds of the people, like, who are trying to push off foreign powers the whole time, and Herod becomes king of Israel. Well, Herod is an Edomite. Not cool. Right? Because Edomites. And so, and Edom used to be over here. It gets displaced. It's Edomia now when you go in the New Testament. So they had that shift. And Herod has some sons and they, you know, Herod dies, but we're in the New Testament now. So like, Herod dies and there's like, but one of the funny things is like, they, Herod dies and the sons go to the Caesar, go to court saying, the land's mine, the land's mine. He's like, who are you guys? Why are you calling yourselves kings? You can't call yourselves kings anymore. So Herod's the only one who got to call himself king. The other sons had to call themselves like by lesser names, so bummer for them. So that's kind of like so. So the whole point. So so now, like I'm trying to give you like context to which you understand like the historical events. So as you read through the New Testament, you're like, oh right, that's what's happening. Oh, that's good. Um, it's like I'm still learning this stuff, like just reading and reading and listening to podcasts that talk about history, and like it's starting to like flesh out, and become clear, and like it kind of helps. I think when I read read stuff, so. Any questions? All right, cool. Um, at some point, we'll talk about kind of some of the genres. Talk about the Bible again, and the way it's formed. Okay, thanks. <laughs>